I mean, I think art has the power to have us re-examine our ideas in community. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Mickey Garcia, director of the Art Museum at Arizona State University, which recently hosted the exhibition Undoing Time, Art and Histories of Incarceration. During our conversation, Ms. Garcia gives background on how Undoing Time came about and the inherited beliefs and entrenched narratives about the justice system that were addressed in the exhibition. We also discuss the wide range of artists who were commissioned for Undoing Time. And Ms. Garcia gives her perspective on the role of an arts institution as an integral part of our communities. Ms. Garcia then describes the legacy she aims to create with her work and shares how she defines justice. Mickey Garcia, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Would you start with giving an overview of Arizona State University Art Museum's mission and how it has evolved since you became director? Sure. The mission of ASU Art Museum is really to be a learning institution that centers art and artists in the service of social good and community well-being. We take that uh, vision or uh, mission really seriously in, and it affects the way that we work, um, not just with the audiences that we serve, but really the way we think about the works that are on display, how we how we show works, um, and our responsibility to the communities that we serve. The museum has had a long history of um, curatorial and director visions that work with social practice and that have been collecting um, artworks of underrepresented communities for many, many years. So when I got here four years ago, it really was only my job to crystallize what had already been happening and to make it really visible and evident that this was something that was kind of the core of how we viewed our museum work. For the exhibition, Undoing Time, Art and Histories of Incarceration, I'd heard you describe it as sort of a cultural mark. Could you elaborate on what kind of gesture you were hoping to make with this exhibition and how it came about? Sure. I think one of the reasons I consider this exhibition such a kind of a a mark, as you say, really a mark in time for us in terms of how we really view working with artists and thinking about our responsibilities to the to the uh, audiences we serve is that it really allowed us to, because we had a, a year of research before we started working on kind of the implementation of the exhibition, it really, really allowed us to work with the artists in the exhibition, as well as a community of practice is what we call it, a community of practice, which is made up of scholars and people in the community with various forms of knowledge and expertise to inform the evolution of the exhibition. Traditionally, museum curators conduct research and then come up, you know, conduct studio visits, conduct research, and then come up with a thesis that they then uh 
execute at, you know, in a, in a museum setting. For us, it was different as we conducted research, did studio visits, but also worked with affected populations, community activists, writers, poets, as well as the artists in the very formation of the thesis of the exhibition. What was also really interesting is that a lot of times, because of resources, museums or a lack of resources, museums will do group exhibitions, select work that has usually already been made, put it together and make meaning from it. In this case, we invited the artist and many scholars and community members to come together for a symposium about a year and a half before all of them talk about their work together and make meaning together. So it was this very bonded, um, organic, humble, kind of learning oriented process. And we hope to really replicate that. And the other thing is that we started, there were two other kind of major indicators for how we really want to work in the museum. One of them is that we started this exhibition with an, with an idea of place, that we were not any place USA museum, that we were going to be working on the histories of incarceration from the vantage point of where we were in the Southwestern United States and how uh, incarceration has affected populations in our territories. So, of course, we have the history of slavery, but we also have the history of indigenous incarceration to uh, indentured servitude, to um, uh, Japanese internment here, to immigration detention. So we really wanted to kind of situate this theme um, in, in our own space space and time. And we hope to do that as a museum is to constantly really think about who we are, where we are, how we keep and make culture. And then the second thing that we also did was we were, um, I think that oftentimes as curators, my curators and myself with a background in curating is that we are really so interested in the content of the exhibition. We're not as focused on the uh, responsibility of that exhibition or impact of that exhibition in our audiences that's sort of left to education. And in this case, we really tried to make a sincere effort to think about like for those impacted by mass incarceration come in to this museum, and that we knew that we would have failure, that we would, um, that we couldn't um, think about everything, that we would conduct, we would have harm, and that we wouldn't um, approach an exhibition as perfection or, you know, all good, that we really wanted to come in, um, knowing that uh, museums as institutions of authority, and particularly this theme, that we we were going to be humans fumbling and trying our best. And in that regard, we really endeavored to work with community activists um, and other folks who knew much more about this to really think through all of the dimensions of what it meant to have an exhibition like this in our museum. When the idea for the symposium began, was it already decided that incarceration would be the subject or was that part of the symposium where it came to light that that was what was needed to be focused on? No. um, So 
the way this exhibition evolved or originated is through a series of conversations I had with the Art for Justice Fund. And that at the time was being is being advised by Margaret Morton of the Ford Foundation. And she and I spoke about the Art for Justice Fund's willingness to fund exhibitions and artists um, to think about mass incarceration with the belief that uh, that artists who are storytellers can fundamentally shift entrenched beliefs systems that we have entrenched cultural beliefs that it's through art and artists that we can change these inherited uh, ideas that we we get um, from from society <clears throat> and so I said to Margaret wow that's a really a, a great that's a really great uh, you know gesture on your part we had already had an exhibition at some years ago with Gregory Sale, who's an artist who had worked with incarcerated populations in our museum. And I had also been very, um, I had admired a lot of the work that was happening at the Contemporary Art Museum Houston and Nicole Fleetwood's work. Um, so I said to her, <clears throat> there are already exhibitions of that are portraying the, you know, um, the egregious impacts of incarceration, I don't know that we could add anything more to this conversation. I really want to be careful that we're not just, you know, sort of trend, you know, trending this and appropriating um, this really important subject matter. But in speaking to my curators, the other curators on the panel, and then doing some research, one of the things we really realized is that we are in a university art museum, we are thinking about art history all the time. And we thought about, well, instead of portraying the current situation of, of mass incarceration, let's look back in time. Let's look at the way that um, incarceration has been portrayed in images throughout time from, you know, the Code of Hammurabi, you know, sort of things what is it in the historical archive or the canon that shows certain things and perpetuates certain ideas about who is wrong and who is right and who is a thief and who is not a thief, you know, mercy and justice. How do we learn those things from the history of images? So we did a huge, we did a massive um, kind of uh, audit of images of art history. And what we realized in critiquing and poking holes through that canon is, well, there are a lot of images and stories that are not depicted. Um, and how can we think about adding to the canon? And the only way that we really thought we would and could is by inviting contemporary artists to contribute new stories, alternative stories. Um, or archival stories that hadn't haven't been really fully realized. And that was when we decided to invite the 12 artists and invite them to come think about this with us in a community. Would you give an overview of the work that those 12 artists put together for the exhibition? So one example is uh, Mario Ibarra Jr., who did an incredible uh, kind of um, vignette of a pizza place in his hometown that the community sort of 
goes to after soccer games and baseball games. They go on Friday nights. And in that uh, pizza parlor, there are um, photos of little base, little league baseball teams all over. And he circled himself. And then one other little kid there, Richard, his best friend, who got caught up in drugs and got caught up in gangs and m- murdered someone and went away for 30 years. And we certainly have plenty of images that show black and brown men going away, but we don't have a lot of images in the archives and the history of art of those men as children, of the communities that lose, um, that suffer loss from so many of their black and brown men leaving and going away. Um, And in Richard's case, he was actually let out during COVID and during the making of this exhibition. So Mario is able to show him um, video Uh, interview him, interview his first steps in the ocean after 30 years. And we also don't, and, and, you know, Richard didn't get any tattoos. He got an education in prison and uh, did not involve himself in gangs. And I think that's another sort of way to think about rehabilitation, which doesn't really get shown in the history of images is how this human, this person persevered um, and, and was able to, he's also really, really happy and doesn't have a lot of like kind of bitterness or hardness, which again is not something we see very often. So we're so trained to look at um, fear um, in, in a, in a sort of um, part, uh, like kind of a partner project to that Stephanie Sajoko took these archives of Filipino prisoners um, and they're these black and white, you know, kind of um, photographs of the turn of the century and these brown bodies and chains. Well, in the history of art, you can definitely see many black and brown bodies in chains. But what she did is she used the Adobe Photoshop tool to erase their faces and their bodies. And there's these beautiful kind of gray and black abstractions is what you see. And she, you know, her uh, kind of intention with that is I, I, she does not want to be responsible for representing over and over and over again, our ideas, our eyes looking at gazing upon more black and brown bodies. And so she wanted to kind of interrupt that consciousness of ourselves as, as audiences constantly having that gaze um, and as well as kind of rescue them from um, from that from the gaze of of only seeing uh, brown bodies as um, as as those that are in chains um, we had uh, a work of photography and video by a Guatemalan artist Juan Brenner and once uh, photographed a, a prison in the highlands of Guatemala. Many people don't know that uh, m- during the Civil War, during the genocide in the 80s and 90s in Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, when people fled to the United States as refugees from those wars, um, when they came to the United States, those who ended up in prisons uh, learned gang behavior and gang culture from the West Coast prison system. And then when they were deported, took that 
gang culture and uh, exported it to Central America. So now there are two very large gangs in Guatemala and he photographed uh, and they're separated in prison. So he photographed one of the prisons that has one of the gangs, the Mara Salvatruche. And it's uh, it was a, a prison that was sort of plopped into this area in the Guatemalan highlands that had, had seen a lot of uh, terror during during the Civil War. And it he's showing how just plopping a prison in the middle of this ancient uh, city in these lands completely destroyed the economy and the kind of life and livelihood of the residents that lived there because there's a lot of drugs now and people who have uh, the families of people behind bars now moved there and they kind of disrupted this years long of ecology. So in a lot of ways, we wanted to show the mass, the global effects um, as well as the disruptive, you know, we, we tend to think that um, we've inherited these beliefs that prisons make um, communities safer. Um, and it's not true in this particular case. And what we saw in those art, we saw a ton, like, like so many images of architecture of prisons, the panopticon, the fortress, you know, this kind of, uh, kind of, general consciousness that if you build something really kind of fortified, then we'll be safer. And that's just not true. So these artists were disrupting these kind of ideas, these entrenched beliefs that we have. The focus on indigenous people also, I believe artists like Chanupa Hanska Luger were prior to this exhibition, that was a focus for them. Was it also the pieces that they contributed? Did it have that perspective as well here? So, yes, there were um, Raven Chacon and Janupa Hanska Luger are two Indigenous artists we invited to participate. Paul Rucker and Ashley Hunt are the only two artists out of all of the artists in our exhibition who had previously worked in this theme of mass incarceration. Chanupa is really interesting. He produced a massive sculpture and kind of string installation. And it's the head of the kind of the bust of a what looks like a conquistador, a Spanish conquistador, kind of uh, speaking to the memorials and all of the kind of statues that are all over the Americas. Um, glorifying Spanish rule. And um, he has two gold coins on his eyes. And then his body actually is made up of string and is kind of tethered to the wall. And that string, the body then turns into land, a landscape. And for uh, Chinupa, it what it was really important to him was the relationship of land to uh, mass incarceration. And it what was fascinating about that is that when we worked with a uh, nonprofit here in town called Mass Liberation Arizona, we worked with them and they also did some public programming for us. One of the things they noted is that a huge, I'm going to get the percentage wrong, but it's something like 70% of all laws on the books in the United States protect property over, you know, and their kind of mission is people over property. And so in that way, 
uh, Chinupa as an indigenous person is really looking at what is it that uh, that law um, is really looking at in from his vantage point, it has to do with with land and the possession of land, which has been detrimental, of course, to his community. So that was really interesting because I think that, um, again, he is so many of the artists in our exhibition are really not just looking at the immediate impacts and the stories of the people who are suffering, but really looking at the long sort of systemic failures um, that that the you know justice system um, has been working within. You mentioned uh, Raven Chacon. He's a composer, I believe. Did he uh, compose a piece for the exhibition? Yes, we did this really interesting thing where we wanted to include different forms of um, the arts. Before I talk about Raven, I will just say that we also invited Michael Road, who's a theater, who's a th- from the theater. He's a, uh, a playwright and a theater maker and had never made sort of visual, quote unquote, visual art and had never had his work in a museum. Um, but we invited him to choreograph the experience of going through the exhibition. Um, and he had these interventions of questions and writing and kind of interactive play and questioning of our own selves as we walked through the exhibition. We thought that would be really important for several reasons, um, but one of them is that we thought that we wanted um, to understand how someone who might be impacted by the system would be triggered or um, um, harmed by coming to see the work um, and that we might offer moments of pause um, the other thing is that we didn't, while we thought this, this exhibition, we wanted, we, we thought it was really important for our audiences to bear witness um, to uh, the history of incarceration. We also didn't want to have people leave um, kind of downtrodden and powerless. We wanted them to leave with a sense of agency and optimism. Um, Paul Rucker always says, you know, the reason that we exist now is there's a failure of imagination for what could be, what our communities could like, could look like if they were thriving and robust. Um, and so what we wanted um, and what we wanted Michael to do is to help us figure out how we might do that. And he certainly did. Raven did, is a composer and he had this installation that was very um, kind of visceral and sensorial. And it was um, this kind of chamber that one walks in and it it slowly kind of closes in on you. And um, you hear the sounds of a juvenile detention center that uh, that was actually in Phoenix. And it's this a very personal experience where one, where an audience member isn't just looking, they're not just this neutral party that's just, you know, gazing upon the work and thinking about it. You physically are um, involved in what it might be like to be isolated, eliminated, you know, to go from your fullness of your whole self to a very, very small number. 
um, is, which is what you become when you go into these prisons. There's also an area I had seen where cards, you were talking about the interactiveness. Uh, would you describe how the cards were working and how you invited the viewer to interact with them? Yes. And that was Michael Michael's intervention. As, as one walked up and around the stairs, there were many questions that he posed around the museum. Like, when was the first time you were punished? Um, when was the f- first time you feel like you forgave someone? So those were the types of questions that were also in these little cubicles, these cubbies, so that it could also give people a sense of pause as they were looking at this, this work. And, and they were questions around what might it look like if there were no prisons and communities to care of each other? Um, you know, what would it feel like um, to teach uh, justice and mercy and forgiveness in public school education? Um, so there were these kinds of questions and, you know, particularly, I would say that lots of people filled them out, um, but mostly it was really fascinating to have school groups um, pass them out and have students talk to each other and then put them in the cubicles. And then we would gather all of the answers and put them in our lobby workshop um, so that people could kind of see, uh, have a kind of community conversation. One of the questions I'd seen, I believe, was, can you imagine a justice you have not seen? I thought that was quite a compelling one. Do you recall any of the responses to that or your own response? I can tell you that through this process, our, you know, all of us, when we, we were thinking about this, and I do think about Paul Rucker all the time in this idea of a failure of imagination, and really this is where artists can do so much of their work, is to think about, you know, um, if there was someone in trouble and instead of a, you know, who had suffered domestic abuse and instead of a policeman showing up, you know, someone who had worked in the field of domestic abuse and could really see that person from the lens of their own, you know, experience and knowledge um, and that communities watched out for each other, that, um, that we didn't have neighborhood watch, we had neighborhood care. You know, um, those are the kind of um, justices I imagine. The Art for Justice Fund that you were talking about before, was there a a sister program or a prior program that was uh, part of ASU that uh, came before the Undoing Time exhibition? I had seen something and I thought it had to do with poetry. No. Oh, oh, yes. Well, so Art for Justice Fund has uh, funded a few people here in Arizona. They funded, for example, the um, writer Francisco Cantu. He's based in Tucson. Um, and they funded the U of A Poetry Center. Um, but they also funded Natalie Diaz, who's a poet at ASU. She won the MacArthur. She just won the Pulitzer. And she runs um, a, a place called, she's indigenous. She runs a place called Center for Imagination in the Borderlands here at ASU. And she was involved with the, she was one of the people that we invited to these symposiums and evolutions and uh, wrote some amazing poetry for our catalog, our publication, which should be out in about a month. We're just finalizing all the edits. 
with all of the feedback that you did receive from the cards and things like that, were there any uh, particularly poignant that that you would share? I think the the one thing that was um, that I remember so well is there is a woman who is a, a high level of the marketing and communications department at ASU. And so we sent out our press release, you know, to, to folks and she approached me and she said, you know, thank you for having this exhibition. I am one of those people who has been impacted um, by the system. And there are so many of us on campus, you know, and there's such a stigma and um, she came and she helped us, you know, we did a series of videos and interviews with the artist and were able to really launch it across campus. And there was a, we were contacted by us and we tried to do a lot of outreach before, before in the evolution, we didn't even know, but there was a, a group of formerly incarcerated students on ASU's campus that we had no idea existed. Um, so they're, you know, getting groups that we had, you know, we had tried really, I think, diligently to reach out before, but there's still so many groups, so many people who are in the shadows because they feel like there's a stigma. So to have such a public forum, to have these discussions, I think was, um, that was really, it felt like, like this was so purposeful. With all of the backbone of, of what has prompted this uh, kind of exhibition at ASU, I wonder if you would speak to your thoughts on museums as uh, you talked before about the power of museums and the a new version of a museum that is interactive and does connect with the people. And, and I believe the tagline for ASU's museum is art for all. Like, how do you see that as a, a revolution of what people understand as a museum? The field, I think, of museums is undergoing a, a critique and having to seriously reimagine its purpose and um, uh, way of doing things. Uh, traditionally, and the way I was brought up in museums is that curators curate and they're experts and they hold all the expertise and that educators will do outreach, but that the fundamental, the fundamental uh, story that we have our lesson is that we have something to say, we have something to teach and you come into our museum as a blank slate, and we will bestow upon you knowledge and edification. And we're living in a world in which people want to be recognized, fully recognized as um, bodies that have lived experiences and expertise of their own. And they want to co-create meaning and be engaged. They don't want to be invisibilized and seen as someone, you know, as people that walk into a museum and then just lay it on me and then, you know, passively listen and then walk out the door. There's something to be said for being uh, in, in, a, in a learning position, but we also as institutions should also be in a learning position and should attempt to make 
authentic relationships with the people that come into our museum and extend our knowledge, our base, our power to try to make meaning with them together. So the audiences that some of the audiences who came into undoing time had no knowledge of incarceration before, and they certainly came in and were able to learn and understand um, this uh, this crisis in our country from the perspective of these artists and from our didactics. But there were other people that came into this museum who have far more expertise and knowledge than we do as curators who happen to research this. And what we wanted to do is make them feel seen, make them feel that they could contribute their knowledge, their experience to the formation of this exhibition. So those activities that Michael did and then our public programs and other uh, things that we did in the museum are, are an attempt to do that. They're not full attempts. I wouldn't say they were the most successful attempts, but they are a kind of repositioning of ASU Art Museum to acknowledge that we are not just, that we are experts in art and research, but we are not experts in the totality of meaning of the artwork or the theme, and that we would be better off and do better when we invite conversation, knowledge, experience from the people that walk into our museums. What would you say to those who don't understand why museums would need to address topics of justice like mass incarceration? Museums have, museums are not a, they are not separate from, but they are a part of the communities in which we live, work, and play. They are civic institutions of dialogue, engagement, storytelling, and they should be responsible to the communities that they serve. Many museums are 501c3s. So they are, you know, not-for-profit community spring organizations. Ours happens to be embedded in a community, in a university. Nevertheless, um, we think of ourselves as institutions that are participating in, um, in a community of people who struggle with climate change and housing and incarceration and um, immigration, we are, and, and the museum is not this temple on a hill. It's part of a community, just like a library is, or a hospital is, or a school is. So it's really our duty to be invested in the conversations of our time. And then secondly, I would also say to anybody who, if you study the history of art, all museums, all artists, um, throughout history have been depicting the issues of their time. Um, and it really is um, where um, we have learned about um, how humans have interacted and what issues were happening hundreds of years ago. It was through art, among other things, but art was one of them. With you saying that, it does prompt me to ask this very uh, open question of why you think art matters. I I think for us, you know, and I, I referenced uh, what the Ford Foundation is, but I think that we, um, as a society and as a people, do have entrenched cultural beliefs 
So when thinking about undoing time, you know, we were thinking about what do prosecutors, what do judges, what do policemen, what do ordinary citizens, what do we go around thinking about incarceration that we've inherited that they make communities safer, that the justice system is fair and equal, that, you know, um, if you do the crime, you got to do the time, all of these narratives that we inherit and that then we act on that really have direct impact on human lives. Um, If art and art artists can shift those beliefs, help us re-examine, you know, help us really think the power of art is to really help us think about the thoughts we have and unpack them in community. I mean, that's the power of museums is that we can do that in community. And I think more than ever, we've seen through the pandemic that we have been reaching out for stories, for new ideas, um, and that we really need that in community. What would you say is uh, the legacy that you hope to bring with the, the work that you're doing? Oh, it's such a great question. And, you know, I, I think about legacy all the time because I think about um, my mom and dad who were really um, people who, you know, museums were not really designed for people like my mom and dad. And yet they love museums, absolutely loved them. And we grew up going to them. And I don't know that I would have been able to have a seat at the table as a museum director were it not for my family really sort of pushing past all the all the obstacles and boundaries that made them feel like it wasn't for them. And they pushed past them because of the power of art, because they just loved the art. And so I think that for me, the legacy that I want to have is to eliminate as many boundaries as possible. And that what I want to do is help uphold all kinds of art forms that um, now that I do have a voice um, in thinking about how museums work, that I'd like to include more voices. The, um, I think one of the things that I bring to the field, to the sector, is that I can see things that other people can't see that are just, it's just the cost of doing, you know, it's just business, it's daily business. But um, I think often about my parents, my family, people who don't traditionally come to museums and think about what would they, you know, with this $10 espresso at the cafe, like, okay, museums say they're for everybody, but is this really for everybody? Or is this for a kind of person who's used to a kind of lifestyle? You know, and I, I can see things. Um, and so I think my legacy is to kind of open up what a museum can be, what can it feel like, um, and who it's actually for. We've touched on justice several times in our conversation. How would you define justice and has your idea of justice evolved over the course of your career or even with just working on this exhibition, did it uh, shift at all? I think that what, what I used to think about justice. And again, when we looked at the history of art, there are a proliferation of images of 
the scales of justice, lady justice, over and over and over again. Kind of this idea that uh, a sense of justice pervades our morals and our ethics as Americans, um, as, you know, Western European thought, and that it is, uh, you know, that it, it just, it's like the air, it's just around and we believe in justice. But the more you do, do research on who is incarcerated, why they're incarcerated, and, and the carceral system, um, it begins to feel per, like a perversion to some people to think that there is this sort of just uh, sense of justice that is exist. To me, I think what I what I started to learn about the word or the phrase or the meaning is that one has to fight for justice. One has to be exert themselves for justice, that it isn't just a given and that one has to protect it and constantly name when it isn't served. Um, I also heard um, Sharon Salzberg was interviewing someone and I wish I could remember her name, but she said, all justice is, is public love. And if you wanted your own family or your own child to receive you know, the benefits of, you know, housing and shelter and love and warmth, that wouldn't you want the public to receive all of those benefits too? And so I love the idea of justice as public love. Undoing Time will be on view at the Berkeley Art Museum from the 27th of August to the 18th of December, 2022, and will then travel to the Contemporary Art Center, New Orleans. There will be links in the show notes to learn more. If you'd like to share your thoughts about this or any of the other podcast episodes, please leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. Or you can email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.